You are listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. Our Public Policy and Regulation Group is a strong bipartisan team with deep ties throughout Washington, D.C. We have built a thriving government affairs practice through our depth of experience and diversity and by maintaining our bipartisan approach. Our State Attorneys General podcast series is hosted by former Deputy Attorney General of Virginia and Presidential Appointee at the U.S. Department of Commerce, Stephen Cobb. Through conversations with State Attorneys General, this series will dive into the importance and growing role of State Attorneys General while hearing firsthand on what they are working to accomplish in their communities. Welcome to another installment of Holland and Knight's Eyes on Washington podcast, State Attorney's General Edition. Uh, my name is Stephen Cobb. I'm a partner in our public policy and regulatory team, and I coach here our State Attorney's General practice. It is my pleasure to welcome to our podcast today the Attorney General for the great state of Michigan, Dan Nessel. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much. Can you tell us, uh, I'm just give a little bit of background about you and kind of your path that led to your decision to run for AG? and some of the priorities that you've taken into office thus far? Sure. Uh, well, I started out my career as a criminal prosecutor, and I worked for the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, which um, is where Detroit is centered, uh, and worked there for over a decade, um, went into private practice from there, where I did a lot of different things, um, uh, criminal defense, a lot of work representing indigent defendants, uh, and a lot of civil rights work as well. Uh, I think likely the case that I'm, I'm most remembered for in Michigan was uh, DeBorby Snyder, which was the challenge to bans on same-sex marriage and uh, adoption by same-sex couples and LGBTQ people in Michigan. And um, we brought that case in 2012, and ultimately it ended up being consolidated into the Sixth Circuit cases that made its way to the Supreme Court in 2015 under Obergefell v. Hodges. And an attorney actually from our case who argued that seminal case, which of course um, realized same-sex marriage nationwide. But uh, I had a number of different things I was involved in. I had um, a nonprofit that I started that uh, focused on hate crimes, and we actually had our own investigators and prosecutors. We would partner with different prosecutors' offices um, to combat the uh, exponential rise in hate crimes and assist county prosecutors with that. Um, and then when I ran for office in 2018, that was the first time I'd run for any state office at all. Uh, and I did so for a number of reasons, but I would say, firstly, I got tired of suing the state of Michigan and thought it'd be nice instead, uh, just to represent the state of Michigan and, and to follow the, the policies and practices that I thought most benefited the people of my state. Um, but also I was highly influenced by the election of Donald Trump. Um, like a lot of people, like a lot of progressive women by my, like myself, uh, especially in our state where we've uh, elected so many progressive women. There you go. You know, from having served in the AG office myself to now um, leading a specialized team in the state AG practice, one of the things that has res- resonated with me over the last, I don't know, five to ten years, and I think certainly the country in the last ten to twenty, is just the increasing role that state attorneys general play in every facet of regulatory enforcement, as well as uh, just general leadership in a, in a political uh, arena. 
um, on the regulatory front, you're talking tens of billions of dollars in settlements and fines nationwide over the last 15 to 20 years. And there really just you know, isn't a facet of industry or life that AGs can't take a leadership role in. And I think that's only become more so in the last five to 10 years. Um, certainly, though, I'm not sure that anyone could have expected to have to deal with some of the issues that you and some of your fellows, fellow AGs had to deal with during the 2020 cycle. Um, and I know that when it came to the protection of election officials and uh, the integrity of the election in general, you know, Michigan Board brought of some of the more scarier aspects of that experience. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, what that was like for you as Attorney General, uh, both you personally and as kind of the umbrella that you serve to protect state officials generally? Yeah, well, it was a very difficult time, and um, unfortunately, that time has not ended. That time is still here. But what we saw during 2020, you know, um, with uh, the spread of COVID, and as a result, um, with the governor having to uh, pass a number of different, or to sign a number of different executive orders to control the spread of COVID and to protect people in our state, uh, you know, you had a lot of pushback. And I think it was a confluence of events. On one hand, you had the president and, um, uh, you know, Republicans who did not want to have any kind of a lockdown, irrespective of how many people died. In fact, many people uh, who didn't believe that COVID was real or compared it to the flu, um, irrespective of the fact that in Michigan now we've lost over 21,000 people in our state alone. Uh, so the governor was signing more and more directives with a very uncooperative legislature. We have strange dynamics in our state, state due to gerrymandering, so we have a very far right-wing legislature, um, but we have very progressive female Democrats that hold our executive offices. And so there was uh, not a lot of continuity uh, or cooperation, and uh, we have a history, very unfortunately, of domestic terrorist groups in our state. And you might remember from the 1990s, uh, Timothy McVeigh, his origins uh, started with the Michigan militia. And so you had the rise of these groups, which frankly, you had an exponential rise in these groups anyway, frankly, during the Obama years, you started to see them come into existence again um, and their membership increase. So those events together, Really, and I would say the Black Lives Matter movement as well was, you know, the George Floyd murder tossed in there. All of these events really were the perfect storm. And so you saw what I believe to be the precursor to the events of January 6th at our nation's capital occurred on April 30th, 2020, uh, in the state of Michigan, when you had armed gun take over our state legislature. And you know, what people don't, I don't think, appreciate is that there was a plan for mass execution that day. Now, you know, if you if you hear about the plot to kidnap and execute Governor Whitmer, you would see that there was an initial plot to take over the Capitol and to start killing people. And that basically it was not coordinated enough that anyone actually started the shooting, but they were prepared to do that. Uh, so, you know, you... You had uh, the necessity. I created a hate crimes and domestic terrorism unit, and we had to pursue a number of different cases, and that includes threats, uh, continual threats, to everyone from president 
governor, Senator Stabenow, uh, judges, um, board of education members, um, board of canvasser members in, in counties. I mean, the list goes on and on, and I've had to be very aggressive in terms of pursuing those cases because I don't want people to think that this is just a cost of doing business if you decide to take either an appointed or run for an elected position in government. I want people to know that no matter who you threaten, whether it's your neighbor, uh, whether it's your coworker, or whether it is your government official, it is illegal, and you will be held accountable for it. So that's become a big part of my job. The other part of 2020, of course, was defending uh, democracy in our elections. And as many people know, in Michigan, Joe Biden received 154,000 more votes than Donald Trump. And yet, the gymnastics we had to go through uh, legally in order to preserve Joe Biden's win uh, were enormous. We were hit with lawsuit after lawsuit starting before the election uh, for voter suppression efforts during the election, um, threats at the polls, and then following the elections. And some of the bigger, more noteworthy cases, of course, uh, the Krakens case, Sidney Powell, um, and her lawsuits, um, certainly um, Attorney General Ken Paxton's lawsuit against uh, the state of Michigan, as well as Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, things that in my lifetime I never, ever expected to see. But we did, and we were successful, but I really believe it serves as a blueprint for the next election and really expose the weaknesses in our democracy so that those who want to destroy it understand just how easy it is to do and what they have to do next time in order to undermine our electoral system. And we're seeing it being shredded um, every day by people who simply don't want a system where everyone who's legally eligible gets an opportunity to vote uh, and where the person who receives the most votes is declared the winner. And it's, it's really tragic for our system and it's resulted um, in, in really uh, the erosion of, I think, everything we hold sacred here in the United States of America. And I favor our future. Uh, following up, kind of, I guess, two questions. You know, one, how do we continue to recruit good people to serve on those local electoral boards, or I think in Michigan they're called canvassing boards. You know, these are positions that, you know, are paying a lot of money. People are doing it out of some sort of civic integrity. And if, you know, people are going to be uh, harangued and threatened, it, you know, I think it's a, it's a serious cautionary tale. You know, you want good people in these positions, and how do you balance that with making them feel safe and appreciated? Kind of question one and question two, and, and you started to hit on this, but and it's not just Michigan. Um, you know, in the, the 2020 cycle, this was in particular Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, maybe to a slightly lesser extent, Nevada. Um, but, you know, these issues are ripe for another 20 states to have to deal with. So, what can attorneys general do? to improve that process and make, make people say, well, are there tools that you and your colleagues need that you don't already have? Um, well, I guess the simple question is, what can be done? Well, first of all, what I try to do is to take each and every situation where you have a threat to one of those uh, officials and handle it in a very serious manner uh, to ensure that people know that there will be accountability and that you can't just get away with these threats. Now, my office is only so large, and we do have a state of 10 million people. And so 
you know, you really need participation by local law enforcement and the county prosecutors as well, um, who are sometimes more reluctant to charge those cases, unfortunately. Uh, and due to the influx of uh, cases that we were looking at during the uh, election time period, I actually had to enroll uh, professors that worked at um, Fair State University, which has their own cybersecurity program, to you know, draft an MOU with them to assist us in helping us uh, track where some of these threats were coming with, I mean, in concert with law enforcement, because we didn't have a staff to do it. There were so many threats that were coming in all the time. And my perspective was, you know, enforcement of the law would be the way that we ensure that these threats can, can you know, continue to occur. I would say I, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, accelerated penalties as it pertains to election workers or other types of government officials. Um, generally speaking, they're not treated differently than anybody else, but at this point, they are more a threat than the regular public. And if we're going to ask people to serve in these roles, we, we have to. We absolutely have to have them know that they are going to be protected. Uh, and in fact, in Kent County, where Grand Rapids is located, we had um, the county public uh, health director basically say, you know, when, when folks talk about firing him, he's like, I, fire me, I'll quit. I mean, he just, you know, we don't have a system in place. I mean, of course, the governor has an executive protection detail, but we don't right. think of that for, for county public health officials, no, you know, and, and their lives are being threatened just as much as not to a greater extent because people see that they're uh, more exposed. Let's, I mean, let's be clear about what a scary time this is for elected officials and for anyone, seemingly, who disagrees uh, with the positions of a select few. Uh, and it's, that is not the way that America has worked historically. It's not the way our democracy has operated. And we have to take these threats incredibly seriously. We can't have a system in place where... One, one party supports the notion that you can threaten the lives uh, of elected and appointed officials. It's, it's not tenable, it's not sustainable, and our country won't survive this. And one of the things you talked about is making sure that these in individuals are prosecuted so that people understand, you know, the gravity of the, of the words and actions. Are the laws in the books enough right now? to match up with the type of conduct that, that we're talking about. Um, I know I've, I've gotten questions from friends and colleagues when they talk about January 6th, that they see the people only being charged with trespassing or disorderly conduct, um, which doesn't always match people's, I think, reaction to what they saw on television. So do you think there needs to be a change in the law? Um, do you think that there's adequate protection for those type of prosecutions now? or is there does there need to be change? And if so, what is that change? Well, there's a very big difference between Michigan law and the federal law. And very sadly, you know, we don't really have domestic terrorism laws on the books. We have lots of foreign terrorism laws on the books, but not domestic terrorism. Fortunately, we do in Michigan. So if you saw with, again, the plot involving uh, those who wanted to harm Governor Whitmer, if you notice, there were, uh, you know, about half the charges were brought federally and the other half were brought by the state. And the reason why half were brought by the state, I don't think it was because the feds didn't want to bring it, it was because they couldn't bring those cases, because they did not have 
adequate laws to address the behavior of those defendants, as egregious as it was. And so I testified before the uh, subcommittee on Homeland Security and Domestic Terrorism, and that's what I was urging Congress to do, is to allow us to have the same sort of protections when it comes to domestic terrorism as we do for foreign actors who commit the exact same acts. And, and you have to recognize what the FBI has recognized, Homeland Security has recognized, and that is that domestic terrorism poses more of a threat to Americans now than foreign terrorism does. And until we make those changes in the law, and until we understand and recognize those threats, um, we're going to remain in a state of peril. Uh, but the problem is, and, and I can talk again about that, uh, that hearing wherein I testified, despite the effort of the National uh, Attorneys General, National Association of Attorneys General, MAG, worst acronym ever, to, uh, to find AGs and find county prosecutors and DAs uh, of both parties to testify, every single witness who testified um, was a Democrat. You could not find one Republican AG in the United States, despite the fact that they have, you know, over half the uh, state AG positions, could not find one who even concede that domestic terrorism was a problem in the United States. And taking you back again to uh, 1994 in Oklahoma City, each and every attorney general at that point recognized that domestic terrorism was a problem. They didn't like it, they didn't support it, and they were going to work vigorously to combat it. And you fast forward to 2021, and we don't have that anymore. We have one party that's fighting domestic terrorism and another party that seems to encourage it. And in fact, you know, you probably know that WAGA, the Republican uh, Attorneys General Association, played a role in the January 6th insurrection. And I'm terrified that you have uh, the, you know, top law enforcement official in, you know, what is dozens of states uh, that seemingly doesn't necessarily believe what happened on January 6th was such a tragic event, um, and, and doesn't believe domestic terrorism was a problem, uh, and seemingly in many instances doesn't want to combat these kinds of threats against public officials. I don't understand that. I don't think it's very law and ordery. Uh, I have been uh, you know, working in the criminal justice system now for decades, and I've worked with many incredible, uh, you know, whether they were assistant attorneys general, whether they were AUSAs, whether they were, um, you know, APAs, assistant prosecuting attorneys uh, of both parties, and have always seen them equally enforce the law. And this is the first time I've ever seen there be such partisanship in terms of simple law enforcement. And it is scary as hell to me. In Michigan, we have all these so-called constitutional sheriffs that believe that they get to make up the law. They get to decide what is constitutional. These are people who have never been to law school, largely. Um, and even when the courts rule is in a particular way, saying, for instance, that something is constitutional, They'll come out and say, well, I don't think it is, and I'm going to help perform a citizen's arrest, which is terrifying. We had a county sheriff that stood on the stage with militia members that were charged with this effort to kidnap and kill the governor 
and make jokes about running over the governor with a bus. And that was, that's the duly elected local sheriff who, since he made those remarks, has been reelected. And that's terrifying to me. That's scary times. I'm going to make a uh, hard and, you know, not smooth at all pivot to uh, one of your, the different hats that you wear as OCAG. Now, we've we talked about your role in defending democracy and criminal prosecutions, but I also want to talk a bit about the civil enforcement responsibilities you have. Um, one of the great powers that CAGs have is when they band together and do multi-states, and I, we've seen more and more of that over the years, and in particular within the last 16 months in areas of consumer protection and antitrust. Where do you see that field coming in, or how your priorities change in consumer protection and antitrust since you've taken office, and kind of where do you where do you see that field going? Well, in regard to consumer protection, you know this this was one of my main goals when I ran for this office was to really enhance our consumer protection uh, division and you know to escalate the number of cases that we brought in order to protect consumers. Quite honestly, and I, I'm, you know, I apologize for how partisan this conversation is. However, there were 16 years of Republicans prior to me taking office. I inherited an office of an incredible man by the name of Frank Kelly, who we lost this last year at age 95. Uh, he was state attorney general in Michigan for 37 and a half years. I think he's largely credited with creating the consumer protection units that we see, not just in the state of Michigan, but all over. The United States. Those types of divisions really didn't exist before he created that in office. And I guess when you're state AG for 37 and a half years, you have plenty of time to uh, decide what your priorities are and actually um, move forward on them. Uh, that's not the case in Michigan anymore. We have term limits of a uh, maximum of eight years. So I, I don't hope ever that I could possibly leave the kind of legacy that Grant Kelly had, but I really wanted to increase and enhance protections for consumers. So we created a number of new initiatives in the office, many, many of them. We have uh, an anti-robocalling unit. That was something I'm sure many years ago nobody thought that we would have a need yeah, for. Which we all appreciate because I don't need a new car warranty. <laughs> no one does. No one does. Uh, we have a, uh, a division of the office that, you know, obviously for many years we've tried to go after bad actors who have stolen people's identities. We've seen an escalation certainly during COVID while people are doing most of their work in banking and, and other kinds of transactions, purchasing online. We've seen an increase in identity theft. So not only are we pursuing those cases heavily, we also created a unit to assist people once they've been victimized to help them restore their credit and their good name. Um, we uh, created a, an elder abuse task force. And the reason why that's so important is not just because we have so many incidences of elder abuse and neglect, but so many involving economic exploitation. So we have a whole slew of new laws, some of which have gone on the books, some of hope I'm hoping to pass, that will help protect seniors who are being economically exploited in a number of ways. And I, in 2019, when it was still okay to do this, I did 65 senior town halls uh, just in 2019 to explain to seniors how they could prevent being taken advantage of. Uh, in terms of coalescing with other AGs across the, uh, the nation, I found it to be incredibly helpful. And you know, the long and the short of it is, I only have so many people on staff at my office. Um, 
you know, I've really enjoyed working with some of the larger states that have more bandwidth than we do. Uh, worked very, very closely with New York and California, uh, who have led many of these issues, but not just that. I mean, many of the other states have been very active in this space. So whether there are investigations into Facebook or Google um, or, you know, other uh, large companies where there are potential antitrust issues, it's been very, very helpful to team up with other states uh, on that. We have uh, a strange situation in Michigan as it pertains to securities work. I know that's very big in other states. I, I wish we could do the same thing in Michigan. It's very hard. Under Governor Snyder, um, who himself had been the owner of Gateway Computers, uh, and I assume had been subject to some of that work on the other side, it made it very difficult in Michigan to bring any um, securities cases uh, because it's it's not really controlled by the attorney general or really even the treasurer, but really by sort of a panel that's put together by the legislature, uh, which, as I noted, doesn't always work well with the executive branch right now. But, yeah, I mean, there's a slew of different areas that we become involved in, and many of our our biggest consumer protection cases are multi-state actions. And I will say, especially in the opioid space, um, but not for the fact that all the AGs, um, and I'm not just talking about, of course, the state AGs, but also the territories and the tribes, uh, attorneys, everybody working together, I don't think we would have the kind of uh, results that we seem to be getting against the opioid manufacturers and distributors. So I think that's been incredibly helpful. Looking into your crystal ball in the next you know, year, 18 months, are there particular areas that you think that uh, both you as the Michigan Attorney General and within your colleagues across the country are going to be an area of particular focus, be that environmental enforcement, antitrust? You see, you see any particular area growing as an area of caution and focus for state AGs more than others? Well, I, I think we've certainly seen an increase in litigation by the Democratic AGs um, in regard to climate change. And some of those pursuits against really, you know, the oil and, and gas companies uh, or industry, the industry or plastics industry, I mean, you know, we're seeing more and more uh, in that space. I will say for me, you know, my biggest environmental case that I have pending uh, involves uh, Enbridge Energy's line five, pipeline five that runs through the states of Mackinac, you know, which is a 68-year-old pipeline um, that runs through an area with uh, currents that are 10 times that of Niagara Falls. Uh, and study after study has indicated that, you know, we're in great jeopardy of losing the sanctity of the Great Lakes at a time when you know, the 48 lower states, uh, you know, in, in the United States are experiencing drought-like conditions. And the Great Lakes people might not realize uh, contains 21% of the Earth's fresh surface water, which we are really going to need, and we can't have compromised and contaminated. But why I'm bringing this up is because even when I brought that case, even when we were just in the circuit court, which is the lowest level for a case of this magnitude, in state court, not in federal court, but in state court, I had, I think, 17 or 18 state AGs sign on as for an amicus on that case. And I think they recognize the great importance of that from an environmental standpoint, and that they would be seeing the same kinds of cases in their own states where you had oil uh, and gas companies 
decide um, where pipelines should go in their states. Uh, and they wanted to be able to regulate that themselves and not just have the, you know, the federal government dictate to them where you could have an oil pipeline that, A, would be responsible for climate change-related issues, but B, you know, threatened our water systems. And so that's the kind of thing that, I mean, that was the first time that's ever happened. But I think it's because we are in, in grave danger right now based on uh, climate change issues we're experiencing at all over the United States and, of course, all over the globe. Uh, so I expect to see increased litigation in that space. One of the unique components of working either with or opposite a state AG office uh, is one of the things I, kind of, I was alluding to earlier when I talked about the, the breadth of regulatory enforcement of the weight that state AG offices are carrying. In the private sector, you know, there isn't a manual of rules of procedure in dealing with the state AG office. Now, our state AG office is a little bit unique. Some have different authority than others. Um, what sort of you know best practices or rules of the road do you think would be helpful for folks here when they're engaging with your office, whether be that you know pre-litigation or or during uh, a multi-state or enforcement action that you think might be unique? I don't know if it's unique. I, I just would say you know I mean Michigan, first of all, from a criminal perspective, you know we have statewide jurisdiction, so we can bring a case anywhere. Um, you know, in Michigan, we have more trouble bringing uh, consumer protection cases sometimes than we would in other states. We sort of have a toothless Consumer Protection Act uh, to some extent because, you know, uh, we had a, a case in the 1990s called Smith v. Globe Life Insurance that basically the, the very conservative Supreme Court that ruled on that in the 90s essentially indicated that um, that act didn't apply to any regulated industry, which is all of them, right. basically. So that makes it a little more difficult on our end in Michigan. And I have been searching for a case since I got into office that might overrule that. We have the first time that we have a Democratic majority on the Supreme Court in decades. So it might be a good time for that to occur. But I would say just an open line of communication. And the way we operate in our office is there's a Virtually no one that I won't take a meeting with and to listen to their perspective, to listen to their point of view. And we've had many times where, you know, we were going to embark on litigation and we were able to resolve things short of that with an understanding of how, you know, our, our you know, business partners, our corporate partners would be changing course on something. And we've, we've had those meetings multiple times um, in all kinds of spaces. And so I'm always willing to engage that. I think it's always better if you can settle something before there's a, a, a lawsuit that's ever filed. Well, I mean, uh, this my, my perspective was in the house in the office, and certainly now that I'm back in the private sector, which is I never liked to wait for a, a letter or, you know, either to send or to receive. And if I saw that, you know, there was one state doing a lot in a particular industry, uh, I had a client in that industry, I wanted to go talk early to explain where we are on that set of issues. Do you find conversations like that helpful? Very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, and then there have been a number of times where, you know, we even go so far as to draft um, laws that, you know, amend the current law. 
that we think are, are more helpful sometimes for both parties. Um, and I will tell you, we are always open to working together with our, our corporate partners, you know, and we're doing that in a number of different ways. Right now, I've been, you know, working with the, the retailers, both the brick and mortar and the online retailers to try to form in my office. Uh, I have many, many new initiatives, but one of them I'd like to see before the end of my first term uh, would be really an organized retail crime unit or, or, or what I would call a business protection unit to stem the you know billions and billions of dollars in, in theft loss that ultimately it's not just about protecting those businesses, it's also about protecting consumers because of course they have to raise their rates uh, or their prices when, um, when there's large scale theft like that for a lot of different areas, uh, especially in, in more urban areas, they end up shutting down their stores altogether. And we've had time periods in the city of Detroit where we didn't have a single grocery store that was not just sort of a small mom and pop type of place that was, you know, a Kroger or, uh, you know, Whole Foods or Farmer Jack or, you know, yeah. one of those. Which that often turn into that secondary market issue where people will steal and then go and find ways to, to, to resell. Exactly. So it's not just a billion dollar loss, but then it's also passed on it to the consumer. Very much yeah. organized crime. It is, you know, mafia type behavior, quite honestly. And, but that's, a, that's an area that was a little unique about it. And it's not right, it's very different from the drug trade in that it doesn't just involve one state. You really have to have cooperation between all the states. And that's my hope moving forward is that we're able to do an MOU with, you know, all 50 states of us working together to combat this. I, this if we can't be bipartisan on an issue like this, then I don't know that there's hope for us to be bipartisan on anything. Right. So we really have to work together. I would love to see that happen. I'm trying my hardest to set up a unit in my office and, and hoping that the legislature will see fit to appropriate me uh, the money that I need to do that because it's critically important. I have one more serious question for a couple of the lighter fare. Um, after four years of some obvious acrimony with the prior presidential administration, um, do you see any areas um, on the cusp of collaboration with the Biden administration, be that FTC, DOJ, SEC, between state with state AGs? And well, I will tell you that um, when you talk about the FTC and the FCC, uh, the robocalling initiative I talked about, uh, we had great collaboration. We had, a, uh, I think, the first annual uh, national robocalling summit of its kind that was sponsored by NAG, and the co-sponsors were, it, it, I, I would like to say it was in Michigan. It was supposed to be in Michigan, but it ended up being virtual. But it was the collaboration between, you know, Michigan and our arch nemesis, Ohio, uh, with Dave Yost, who was very cooperative, and he was great to work with, and his staff was great to work with. I, of course, am a Michigan Wolverine, and he's an Ohio Buckeye, and yet we found a way to work together with our federal partners on this, with the telecom industry. And I think we're making great progress, and everyone wants the same thing, which is to stop illegal robocalls. And I'm thrilled whenever we can find an area to come together on. I mean, if Wolverines and Buckeyes can work together, that's kind of, that would be some measure of hope, right? That's right. But in that, in that vein, and you and I were talking about this before we started recording, uh, what a fan I am of uh, your Twitter presence. Um, you know, have you, have you found that you know, your activism on social media helps you connect with your um, constituents in a productive manner? I do, actually. Um, first of all, I think it's nice when people can see their elected 
officials, it's just real people like them. But a big part of what I've done, whether it's um, my Twitter feed or one of my PSAs mm -hmm. that I do on things like voting and consumer protection and all different kinds of issues, a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, I, I love doing town halls. I love getting out and talk to people in public. And during the pandemic, you simply couldn't do that. So I thought the next best way to get messages across to people uh, that were consumer protection related or in Michigan, how to vote, because we had first-time absentee ballot voting for, for no, no reason. Uh, that was passed in 2018 by Voter Initiative, but nobody knew how to vote. And it was during a global pandemic, so I would do videos. One of them, I was in a, in a Halloween costume, one I was in my, my pajamas, but I really wanted to get the message across. But I'm, I guess, at least a little savvy enough to know that if it's me sitting behind a desk in my lawyer suit, Ain't nobody going to watch even the first five seconds of that video. So I had to sort of jazz it up a little bit, make them entertaining, make them interesting, make them eye-catching so that people would get those messages. And I'll tell you what, hundreds of thousands of people ended up watching some of those videos. So if those were hundreds of thousands of people that knew how to vote when they were otherwise confused or who avoided being victimized by a scam artist because they learned about a specific scam that was very popular and that people were losing millions and millions of dollars to, then it's worth me looking like an idiot in my pajamas <laughs> if it got you to watch that ad. And I'm willing to sacrifice my dignity to help out my constituents, and I hope that that's been helpful. Uh, Jenny, thank you so much for your time. Before we wrap up, is there any um, initiative or message that, that you want to leave about something that you have going on um, in Michigan? Yeah, I'd love to. We have um, we have some great criminal justice reform programming that we're doing, and one that I am as excited about as anything uh, addresses the backlog both the backlog in criminal cases being disposed of because we haven't had jury trials in such a long time, uh, the rise in gun-related crime, crimes, gun violence, uh, and also the fact that people are having a hard time finding uh, you know, the labor market. We've had a great shortage. So we have a new program we're going to be kicking off soon called Job Court. And it's really an opportunity for people who uh, have pending gun crimes that are non-assaultive uh, mostly possession of illegal firearms, to be instead placed into a job with job training. And if they are able to maintain that job for a year, their criminal case is dismissed. And I'm really excited. We're starting this up. We're kicking it up in some of our most populous counties. Uh, and we have wraparound services for these folks. We're going to provide them with, you know, if they need help with substance abuse or mental health you know, types of, of issues that they're going to need some assistance with or transportation. We're going to be there helping them with that. But at the same time, we're going to be taking people who are on the street committing a gun-related crime and instead put them into a job. And these are pilot programs, but I'm really excited to see how they work. Um, it's, it's as exciting to me as any other initiative that uh, I've had. And I'm working in concert with the county sheriffs and county prosecutors and I can't wait to see where it goes. That sounds really exciting, and hopefully it works, and it's something that can be scaled. So that's fantastic. If people want to learn more about you and the program, where can they get more information? Contact me at the Michigan Department of Attorney General. Or follow you on Twitter at... Dana Nessel. There you go. Uh, General, thank you so much for joining our podcast. It's been a fantastic conversation. We've really enjoyed having you. Uh, again, my name is Stephen Cobb, and this has been another episode of Holland and Nights. 
Eyes on Washington podcast, State Attorney's General Edition. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Thank you for listening to an Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash PPR.